Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, verse 26, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold. I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the last installment on this man named Adam, we just pray, Father, that your word would open up in our own minds, that we would see Adam in a different light. We would see all the implications that his actions brought about even in our lives today. That we would begin to understand how important it is to possess personal holiness, to yield ourselves in a trustful relationship with you, to abide in you and do whatsoever you will and not what we will. Thank you, Father, for revealing these things to us, and thank you, Father, that we have your word to guide and direct us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last installment on Adam, and I could go much longer, obviously, but I'm not going to, and I just want to, by way of quick review, pick up where we talked about the presentation of Adam. I think in your bulletin, you still have the, the main outline preparation for Adam covered all of how God created the heavens and the earth and prepared the earth specifically for Adam, the crown of his creation. We went into a lot of depth there. But then the presentation of Adam, we understood that man was created both special and personal. He's unique. Man was created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and that that image of God has some implications. And I just listed four of them to kind of help us get our arms around what the implications are are of being created in the image of God because we reflect that image of God. And that is personality, morality, spirituality, and physicality. And I said in the area of personality, um, Adam was unique from the animal kingdom because he was able to know. He had self-awareness. He was able to know of himself, but also able to know God, his creator, and he was able to experience emotion, feelings, and to exercise his will. 
With his mind, Adam was able to think abstractly to reason, and he possessed a sense of self-awareness. That's not like the animals that God created. They have uh, instincts, and they can be trained, but they don't have these self-possessed characteristics that man has. Morality, with the capacity to know, he was also endowed with emotions, and Adam could sense God's love for him, and Adam could love God back. And then when God created Eve, the woman, he was able to exercise love towards her. But also in this area of morality, he had freedom to choose to obey or disobey. We'll get into a little bit of that today, that free will that he has. Only Adam can be said to have had free will. We'll get into that a little bit later. He had freedom to choose to obey or disobey God. Thirdly, spirituality, we're told that God is spirit, so it it follows reason that if Adam was created in the image of God, that Adam would be a spiritual being as well as a physical one. Only man possesses a spirit, animals do not. Not if we understand spirit as that linkage to relate to God as spirit. Animals, it is true, have a nefesh, which is translated soul or spirit, but it's just not the same in an animal as it is in a man. And fourthly, physicality. God's image is in some way reflected in man as only man stands erect. And what I did is I ran to the fact that we have tongues. I love um, just a preacher. I can't remember his name. He was an old country preacher, and he said, there's something inside here that sees with these eyes, hears with these ears, and speaks with this tongue. Talking about the soul of man, the inner person of the man. But we are physical beings, and we can use our tongue to articulate our thoughts and our emotions and express our will. And I think that God was preloading creation for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, because we saw that in Hebrews 10.5, Jesus quoting a psalm said, a body you have prepared for me. And again in Hebrews 1.3, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And of course in Philippians, when we studied that book, we found out in chapter 2 that Jesus took the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. And I ran all the way to the fact that presently today, after Christ's ascension, he ascended in his glorified body and he presently is sitting at the right hand of the Father in his glorified body because we're told in Acts 1 that he will return even as he has left. This is beyond my understanding, okay? This is far beyond, but it should make us thrill. And it should make us take care of our bodies better. It's important. So we know, therefore, that beings can know God, they can obey him as well as love and worship him. And those, at least in some ways, reflect the Imago Dei that we've been created in. What an incredible heritage we have. We've been gifted by God. We've been created in his own image. What a responsibility to reflect that image out to the world around us, to glorify him. 
Our understanding of this demands it, and our love motivates us to do it, and our obedience is a reflection of our doing that. Very important. And then I talked about the predicament of Adam, and we labeled two of them. The first predicament is he's alone, right? Excuse me, I did it again. The first predicament that he faced was God gave him a command. God gave him a command. We see that in uh, 2, 16 and 17. He says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. There's that freedom. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And we said, this is a predicament for Adam. Because now he has a choice to make. Will he obey God or will he obey his own desires? You see, he had freedom to take from every tree, but one. And God's ban on that only one tree was a test of Adam's willingness to submit to God's authority and show his trust in his creator. Would he listen to what his creator said or would he choose to do what he desired to do? And God has authority to command the people that he has made simply because he is the creator. That's why evolution is so destructive, the theory of evolution, because it takes away the fact that God is a creator God. And when you do that, you remove man from any type of jurisdiction under God. You remove him from the creator-creature paradigm. That warning was the difference between life and death, God said, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. His second predicament was being alone. And you find that in verses 18 through 25 of chapter 2. Everything was very good at the end of chapter 1. Everything that he created was very good. But then he looked at Adam and he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I love how God identified man's problem and then God rushed in to meet that problem. But he wanted man to understand his problem. I don't, at, the, at the point where God saw that man being alone was not good, I don't think Adam realized that yet. And so he brought all the animals before him. And Adam named them, and yet not one was found that was suitable or fit for him. So that created a deep need, a desire within Adam. You parents that are training your children, sometimes just giving them the answer isn't, the way to go, sometimes helping them to see their own needs that they have for a Savior, pointing out how they've failed because they have leaned on their own understanding. They went against even your direction, and that's how mom and dad do it too, and we get in trouble when we go according to our own desires and go against what God desires for us, and you link the child's obedience up to God. We're having a marvelous time in the uh, joint heirs studying parenting. Just <laughs> uh, We have gone through three pages of the first chapter in two weeks, and I, I just have no hope. We'll, we'll be studying parenting for a long time. There's just so much, so many questions, and not everybody in the class has kids, but I remember when Mary and I went through training with the mission agency that we were with. We were without children for 10 years, And we had more brain cells (laughs) because we didn't have kids, right? Kids suck the brain cells out of parents. I don't know if you guys know that. 
You become much dumber after children. But we were able to listen and glean a lot in preparation. And when we did have children, those thoughts came back to us. Those things came back to us. So even if you don't have children, if you're married, come and visit us at Joint Heirs at 9 o'clock. But it's, it's very interesting that God saw the need, then he helped man to recognize his own need because Adam saw that there wasn't anybody suitable for him, and then God met the need. Do you see the monergistic sense in which God is dealing with man here? Okay? I mean, all over the first and second chapter of Genesis, we see God as sovereign. He takes the man and places him in the garden. He didn't talk to Adam. What do you think? Adam? Would you like to go to the Garden of Eden? He took him and placed him there. And that's the end of it. That's what he did. And Adam was in the garden. And then he identifies the man's need and he begins to do something to help the man recognize his need. And man recognizes his need and then he puts him into a deep sleep and he meets that need. And what a marvelous way that he met that need in creating Eve one who is suitable for him. And then God brings Eve to the man and presents the woman to the man. God, 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 God. Man's a recipient, isn't he? It's interesting. And she was a perfect fit. The perfect fit for him. He said, this, this one is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And of course, he did what anybody would expect him to do. He married her. Now, I could wax eloquent and say there weren't many choices, but I I won't go there. She had to be something, right? He had to be something. The first man and the first woman, no corruption from sin. Can you imagine how brilliant they were? Can you imagine how beautiful they were in physical form? Uh, It just is beyond imagination. Well, we've moved now to the peccability of man. The peccability of man. And, and, and first things first, let me say that peccability comes from the word peccable. And peccable just means the capacity to sin, the capability of sin. You may have heard of the saying, Adam, prior to Genesis 3, had, uh, 3, had the capability to sin, but since the fall, man is incapable of not sinning. We're incapable of not sinning. We, there's no way we cannot sin since the fall. But Adam, beforehand, was in what we would call original righteousness. I don't like the word innocence, but it is innocence. And he had the capacity to sin or not to sin. We're in a different ballpark because of Adam. We're not sinners because we sin, people. We don't become a sinner. Your little child doesn't automatically become a sinner when they first sin. They sin because they're sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We have inherited a sin nature, original sin. We'll get into that a little bit more here going forward. But Adam, in original innocence, was given a choice by God to obey or disobey God's commands, not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, that Imago Dei, originally possessed by Adam, ensured him of at least several things that we no longer possess because of Adam's sin. 
Number one, relative perfection. Relative in that he wasn't perfect like God is perfect, but he was relatively perfect, not in the highest state that man could be in, because that is yet to come. Jesus Christ reached that. But he is relatively perfect. Number two, he was in original righteousness. He was the crowning glory of the image of God. And yet with a capacity or capability to sin. But what was unknown, sin was unknown pre-fall. No example of it. Listen to this. This is uh, written by Hodge, uh, who wrote a systematic theology that I love. He says this, quote, His reason was subject to God. His will was subject to his reason. And his affections and desires were subject to his will. And his physical body was Adam's obedient organ of his soul. I'll read it one more time. Follow the train of thought here because it's all messed up now in us. (laughs) We're not like this anymore. In original righteousness, his reason was subject to God. And his will then was subject to his reason. And his affections and desires were subject to his will, which was subject to his reason. You know what we do now? We invert all that. We go our feelings. We put feelings first. And then we reason that, hmm, this seems like a good idea. This seems like this will be pleasurable. And then we enact our will, and our bodies carry out that desire. That's not the way God created us to be. But Adam, in his original righteousness, was different. And then thirdly, holiness, which means Adam had unfettered fellowship with God. He walked with him in the cool of the day. Nothing was marring his relationship with God. In man's redemption, we are told that we are new creatures in Christ, which are created, he's created in the righteousness and true holiness. We regain those capacities from the original creation. There's so much here, people. And fourthly, immortality. Do you know that? Adam was immortal. He was immortal. Not only his soul, but his whole person, his body. Man created in the image of God did not have within him the seeds of death and would not have died due to the constitution of his nature. We have doctors and we have nurses here that have studied the human body, and the human body, when you study the human body, it looks like it should be able to go on forever, but something happens. It's because of the corruption of sin. And we wear down and we wear out and we die, just like God said we would. Now, when God first created Adam and Eve, humanity's condition was ideal. He was in a perfect environment called the Garden of Eden or Paradise, He was innocent in his nature, and he experienced intimate fellowship with his creator. But after Adam's willful disobedience of God, the human condition changed, and gone were the perfect environment. He was asked to leave that environment and placed outside the garden. His innocence was destroyed, and his fellowship with God was destroyed. He hid from God. Now, the philosophical views of man that are given to us by these great thinkers 
And because they are created in the image of God, man is able to think great thoughts. But if they're unregenerate men, they never connect properly. Rousseau is one such Swiss philosopher whose writings actually inspired the French Revolution. He theorized that man is naturally good, but that he is corrupted by society. Many people today believe that. Other philosophers agreed with Aristotle and and John Locke, most recently, who held the notion that we are born an empty slate. That little baby in your arms is just an empty slate. And that we're free to define the content of that character. And it's only outside forces that begin to shape us. Kind of a same thing that Rousseau believed. However, according to the Bible we read that the natural human condition is sinful and we're estranged from God, our creator. We're not born innately good or morally neutral. We're born sinners. And and we're talking about that up in, in our class on parenting. It's just so interesting. Because we have parents with really, really wee little babies that have just been born, all the way to parents who have kids that are six, seven, eight years old. And we're just talking about this innate desire to sin these little ones have and it's like they inherited it from their mothers I know it's true because <laughs> us men would never do anything no I mean it's just amazing and see when you begin to grapple with the biblical worldview of man it's called biblical anthropology okay when you begin to grapple with that then you have to ask your question what do we do with this and the good news is that there's verses for that There's apps for that all through this Bible, and that's what we're studying. But you see, the biblical perspective is that the human being is sinful and estranged from God, and we're born like that. We're not born good and with a clean slate. We are born as sinners, and every person's destiny, if something drastic doesn't happen, is death and the wrath of God experienced in an eternal hell. Now, I know that doesn't go over well in today's culture. Talking like this, oh my gosh, take me away, right? But that's the biblical viewpoint. That's our human condition. And it's the very fact of Adam and his sin that has brought this human condition upon the world. Then the question is not, why do bad things happen to good people? We got a series going on in a big church in the Twin City area that's asking the why questions, and that's one of the questions. Why do bad things happen to people? That's not the question. It's why does anything good ever happen to anybody? Because of the sin nature that we've inherited through original sin. The Bible teaches that because of Adam's sin, everyone born afterwards now has been born in original sin. And this is the sin of Adam passed on from parent to child, from parent to child, from parent to child, until, of course, today. And you passed it on to your children, and we passed it on to our children. And that's just the way it is. The doctrine of total depravity, you've heard of that? It doesn't mean that men are as bad as they could be. What total depravity teaches is that sin is a corrupting entity. It it corrupts every faculty of us from our minds, our emotions, 
our will. There's a corruption there, and it's total. That's what total depravity means. It's not that he's totally depraved in a modern sense where everybody is as awful as they possibly could be, and thank God we're not, but we have that capacity, don't we? We have that capacity because every faculty that we have and possess as human beings has been affected by sin. That's what total depravity is. Now, the setting of Adam's peccability, I want to read to you from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Oh, from the tree, uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Oh, I feel like we need to pray again. (laughs) So much for the wisdom in Rousseau's theology. His assessment that man is naturally good but corrupted by his environment. And Locke's idea that it's outside forces that shape us. Adam's environment was perfect. There was nothing in that environment that would have shaped him. And yes, the temptation did come from the outside of this interloper called the serpent, but he processed all that inside, inside his own little heart. Adam's environment was perfect and everywhere. There's no disease, no hunger, no need of any sort. Everything was supplied by the loving hand of his creator, God. And there was no sin, no sadness, no pain, no death. Adam lived in the Garden of Eden, which is paradise. And what prompted the sin was introduced from the outside, the serpent, but it was Adam's choice to turn from God and trust a lie. He turned away from his creator God's words and began to trust what the serpent said, which was just the opposite of what the creator had said. He acted upon it, and that acting came from within him. Now, our first clue something's amiss in this story is the serpent. The serpent is described as crafty or subtle. It means cunning and skilled in deceit. And the serpent's true identity is revealed in the book, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, And that great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Want to hear a scary thought? 1 John tells us the whole world lies in the hands of the devil. (laughs) 
Oh, I'm, I'm so grateful that there's common grace. I'm so grateful that the world is filled with Christians that hold back that total depravity from being totally depraved people running around. We are salt and light. We hold back things. And there comes a time at the beginning of the tribulation when the church is lifted off of the earth through the rapture, at which time there is no restraining force of the salt that we are in the world. And guess what? The whole world goes bonkers for seven years. And that's the ushering in of the Antichrist. And it it, it would completely be destroyed were it not for Jesus Christ's return, his second coming. So that's our first clue that there's something wrong is this serpent, the devil. I want to talk a little bit about the deception of Eve, but also the culpability of Adam. You see, in verse 6, It says, when the woman saw, temptations and enticement away from God through unbelief into a lie. Every time we sin, people, we are sinning against truth. Every single time. And as believers, when we sin against the truth, we're sinning against the truth of who God says we now are in Christ Jesus. We don't need to sin. We do. Every day, but we don't need to. We can say no to sin. Titus 2, 11 and 12. We can deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We have that power now. The, the bondage of sin has been broken through Jesus Christ. And now we can activate our will according to the imago Dei and do what is right and glorify God through personal holiness. But the nature of temptation For Eve, the temptation was initiated from without, but processed from within. And each one, James tells us, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's us today. Now, wasn't so much Eve. For us, it's it's within us. We've got an enemy that lives right within us. Adam and Eve did not. They had that enemy that came from without, that, that snake that came in. But for us now, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James 1, 14 15. Well, reasoning that the fruit was useful and attractive and that it would make her wise, the woman became deceived and she ate. Now note the temptation comes through three avenues, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2.16. It is the same today. We need to put a, 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 a gate in front of our eyes. We need to tamp down those lusts and desires. I'll tell you what, we live in such a world, we have, we have stuff bombarding us constantly that just accentuates the lusts and desires and the greediness that that we have as part of our sin nature just as an enemy within us we want i I never forget a seminary prof whom i love dearly hispanic man pastor alex montoya and man he was macho but he said he learned early on in, in seminary he identified that every fall he became exceptionally depressed And he didn't know why. 
But then he started tracking himself and watching himself a little bit. He realized that every fall is when the new car ads would come out for the new models of cars. And he was driving an old beat-up Ford. And he just got depressed because his Ford was just a piece of junk. And he identified it, and so he could deal with it. And he just put it down anymore, and he didn't suffer from that anymore. I thought, wow, that is really true. But ladies, you know, what is it that gets your desires rolling? Okay? Okay, I'm going to step out here and just really get in trouble. Romance novels. Ladies, do not read romance novels. Don't. And I know a lot of people do. Don't. They're... It's soft porn, and some isn't even soft, okay? Don't. It's, it's, it's something bad. And, but what about Amazon? Oh, I hate Amazon. I love Amazon. I hate Amazon. I love Amazon. <laughs> Amazon's great, man. I can get a book overnight that I, I need. I need it for studying, right? Oh, man. <sighs> Be careful. Because we're bombarded with this stuff. Those are those lusts that we're talking about. Now, Adam and Eve, they broke a command. She took and she ate and she gave and he ate. There it is right there in a nutshell, verse 6. She took, she ate, and she gave, and he ate. Lured away by their desires for the fruit, Eve sinned, believing the lie of Satan over the truth of God. And the New Testament further reveals that Eve was deceived. She was deceived, thinking that she had done right. She thought this was the right way to go. But Adam disobeyed knowingly, according to 1 Timothy 2.14. The woman was deceived, but Adam was not. Both were held accountable, though. The deceived woman and the culpable man were both held accountable. Now, I believe that at that temptation, Adam was right there present with Eve throughout the temptation. Some people don't believe that. I believe that, and I'll give you four reasons that are compelling to me, okay? Number one, Eve was created to be with the man. God saw that man was alone, it wasn't good, and he created the woman, and I mean... His response was ecstatic, and it just seems natural that they would be together. We don't see them separate in any other situations. Number two, there's an interesting use of personal pronouns, not observable in the English translation. But if you look at 3.1, when Satan begins his temptation of Eve, he said, indeed has God said to you, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden, the pronoun that's attached to the Hebrew verb is in the plural. It's a plural pronoun. But when Yahweh Elohim first gave the command in, in 2.17, he gave it to Adam, and the Hebrew uses a masculine singular you. Look at 2.17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you, it's a masculine pronoun, and it's in the singular you shall not eat, okay? In fact, all the way through Genesis 1, 3 through 5, or excuse me, Genesis 3, 1 through 5, covering the entire temptation account, all the personal pronouns are plural, indicating to me that both Adam and Eve were present at that time together. And then look at verse 6. 
And when the woman saw the tree was good for food and was delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate it and she gave also to her husband, what? With her. Hello. What, did he just show up in time to eat the fruit? I think he was there the whole time. And then in Genesis 3, 7, we read that after they ate the fruit, they knew they were naked. And the last time nakedness was mentioned was in 2.25, where we read, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They also sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So I think they were together. The question comes, men, why do you think Adam didn't say anything? What was Adam doing? Adam was supposed to be the leader. He was the head over the woman. The woman was a helpmeet suitable for him to help him. He remained quiet. And I have my personal thoughts concerning that. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but I'm telling you what. Eve must have been some kind of woman. And he knew what it was like to be without her. And he capitulated. And she took the lead. And he followed. Role reversal. And we've been suffering ever since then, both men and women. So although those are not conclusive reasons, they are compelling enough for me to believe that. It's hard for me to believe that Adam was not present right there and that he capitulated. He, he let Eve go with it. I don't know. Now, there's two things involved in Adam's sin. Number one, he violated the revealed will of God, obviously, right? And he turned away from God's authority and trusting him, which is also called lawlessness. When you directly disobey God, it's sin. And simply defied, sin is any act or intent in disobeying God's revealed will. And number two, he obeyed Satan by believing Satan's lies. By choice, Adam believed the lie of Satan and he followed him in disobedience followed his wife in disobedience, thinking himself autonomous, thinking that he was able to make this decision and he was going to do it. And he did not act in true independence, though, because all he did is he substituted his dependence or his allegiance from God to Satan. Nobody can be truly independent. Nobody is autonomous. When I was 16 years old, I informed my father that I will do whatever I want to do. You cannot make me do whatever I don't want to do. That was from some teaching I got from a teacher in junior high school. And he said, as long as your feet are under my table, you will do what I tell you to do. And I said, what if they're not? And he said, well, you can do whatever you want. And I left. I left home at 16 years old. Thank God for Jesus. (laughs) It took me three years to discover that I needed a savior because I almost ruined my entire life by the way I was living, thinking I was autonomous. I wasn't autonomous. I was doing the dictates of the devil. I think it was Bob Dylan that said, you got to serve somebody, right? Maybe the devil or it may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. There is no such thing as autonomy. Now, it's important to understand that God did not create man with that capacity for complete independence 
or autonomy. People either humbly submit to the will of the creator God and show it by trusting him and obedience, or they rebel against him and refuse to trust him and act in disobedience to him, thereby placing themselves under the rule of Satan, either by intention or default. Now, Eve did it by default. She was deceived. Adam did it intentionally. We see this peccability of Adam playing out, don't we? This is our father. This is the great father from which we all came. Now, there are immediate consequences to Adam's sin. The human condition that we can identify in the world around us today is the immediate consequence of Adam's sin. And it's still going today. There's death, there's guilt, there's alienation, there's fear. And death, when we talk about it, you've heard me say from this pulpit, it means separation. So there's spiritual death. That is a separation of the human soul from God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, Isaiah 59.2. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And some would contend with that and say, well, they ate of the fruit, but they were still alive. I mean, so much so that God kicked them out of the garden and they had kids and everything. What are you talking about in the day that you eat of it? The Bible doesn't speak the truth. Well, they did die. They died spiritually. They became separate from their source of life spiritually. Uh, but, But physical death was quick to follow. Spiritual death is a second type of death and it's separation of the human soul from the physical body. Genesis 3.19 tells us, till you return to the ground, Adam, because from it you were taken and you are dust, and so to dust you will return. That's physical death. But there's a third type of death, and that is eternal death. And eternal death is an everlasting separation of the human soul from God in hell. It's also called the second death. In Revelation, we read, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name, and kids, listen to me, okay? If your name is not found written in the book of life, it says in the Bible that you will be thrown into the lake of fire. You do not want to go into the lake of fire. That's another title for hell. Your name must be written in the book of life. And the way your name can be written in the book of life is asking God to save you through Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm saying kids, I don't know how often you hear that. (laughs) And I'm going to take the opportunity to challenge you. Is your name written in the book of life? If you're fearful that it's not, talk to your mom and dad. And if they don't have an answer for you, come back to me. I'll talk to you. Okay? It's important. Now, although Adam and Eve were still physically alive, they were separate from God because they offended him. The experience of spiritual death, the separation from God, their source of eternal life, their lives changed drastically from that moment on. Look at Genesis chapter 5 real quick with me. And you see this little phrase eight times in Genesis chapter 5. It starts out with Adam and explains the the generations of Adam in verses 1 through 4. And in verse 5 of chapter 5 in Genesis, it says, So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and what? He died. Down in verse 8, and he died. Down in verse 11, and he died, Enosh. And down in verse uh, 14, Canaan. 
and he died. And all the way through, verse 17, and he died. And verse 20, and he died. And then you got Enoch. Lo and behold, Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. He didn't die. He was taken to heaven without death. Interesting. And then in verse 27, Methuselah, and he died. And all the way down to Lamech in verse 31, and he died. So what God said is true both spiritually and physically, and except something drastic happens to a person during their lifetime to where they turn away from their sin and following the dictates of the lie and turn towards God and trust him and entrust their soul to him to save it, they will experience spiritual death. And that spiritual death will then lead into eternal death if you're not careful. Secondly, guilt. The eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. Now, there's nothing wrong with nakedness except after sin, there is. Before eating from the tree which God had forbidden Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed, we read in 2.25. But immediately after their disobedience, they felt vulnerable and disgraced. Their eyes were indeed open, but only to their nakedness. Now, concern for their outward nakedness was symptomatic of an inner spiritual problem. They had a guilty conscience, and they rushed to sow leaves for a loin covering to cover themselves because they didn't know what this was that they were feeling, but it was a feeling of guilt. And they tried to cover it physically and it's so amazing when we read in chapter 3, when God comes to the garden, they heard the sound of the Lord, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called out to the man, and he said, where are you? As if God didn't know, right? He gave him a chance to come clean. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. This is post-loin covering, folks. (laughs) The covering was already there. And he says, I was afraid because I was naked. No, no, you're not naked anymore. You've got the covering. It's not cutting it. Because it was something deeper than something physical. He had a sense of guilt. Their efforts were futile because the fig leaves had no power to cleanse a guilty conscience. And then there's alienation, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And in the Hebrew, it really points out that they hid themselves separately. They weren't together, so they even separated from one another when they hid from God. So they're separated from God, and they're separated from one another, and it comes out in the way that they blamed each other, right? The guilt of sin not only produces an overwhelming fear of exposure, but also affected the couple's ability to reason clearly. There's no place you can hide from God. What what were they thinking? This is called the noetic effect of sin. Sin affects the mind. They no longer reasoned properly. They thought they could hide from God. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Jeremiah 23. 
God says, where are you? Well, clearly God was not trying to locate Adam. He's God. He knows all things. Rather, he is drawing him to take responsibility for his actions, kind of like running the animal's path. He was wanting the man to understand what he had done. It wasn't Adam who sought God. Another instance of sovereignty. Adam did not seek God. God said, Adam, where are you? Adam was sought by God. And apart from God's initiative, man will always run from God because of our guilt and our love of sin. Men love darkness because of their sin. Now, however, when when God does seek man, man's proper response should be to seek God in return and quickly, immediately, right? We learn that in Isaiah 55. He says, you know, when... When God is near, that is when we are to seek him. When he begins that process, when we feel that tap on our shoulder, that's when we need to pursue God with all of our heart, wholly and continually. But they were alienated from God, but they were also alienated from one another. And, and fear. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid. Guilty before God, Adam finally and initially felt fear for the very first time. And his hiding demonstrated the separation that now existed between he and God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. Interesting that Adam still felt naked despite his leaf covering. That just, that just blows me away. And it just shows the futility of our trying to deal with our own guilt in our own way. No way. God says, Have you eaten from the tree? What is this you have done? That's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Because he says, what is this you have done? Again, is God asking because he doesn't know? Of course not. God's holding them individually responsible for their disobedience. God created man to live in dependence under his authority. All will answer to him for their actions, whether good or evil. And then there's irresponsibility, and this is where the blame shifting comes in. Adam responded immediately. He says, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid. And he said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, oh, it was the woman that you gave to me. Who is he blaming there? God. He's saying, the woman. You know, this, this now is bone of my bone. <laughs> that woman that you gave me, she's the cause of it. You gave her to be with me, and she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? He didn't agree or disagree. He just said, what have you done, Eve? And the woman said, it was a serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. Anything but personal responsibility. Are we there or what in this culture? I mean, this is so relevant. Nobody assumes personal responsibility now. It's the way my parents treated me when I grew up. It's my upbringing. It's the neighborhood I grew up in. It's the drugs that I take that make me do this. It's the alcohol that I drink. It, 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 it. Nobody says, I'm a dirtbag. But I tell you what, when you finally get to that point and you confess that you're a dirtbag and you need help, that's when Jesus' hand immediately stretches out. And just like Peter, who said, save me, he will. But you need to understand you need saving. 
as they say in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so Adam responded to God's simple question by shifting the blame away. Eve blamed a snake. And though she had been truly deceived, God still held her personally responsible. Because he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Now, those were the immediate consequences, right? The death, the fear, the guilt, the alienation. I want to give you a quick rundown of the universal consequences. And for that, you need to turn back to Romans chapter 5. Oh, my. I'm sorry. This is just too good. Nursery people, forgive me. I read this to you um, because I knew I would not have time to read it to you in full. But I want you to follow along with me and understand that there, there's this repeated phrase, one man, one man, one man, one man, all the way through. And what it is is a comparison between Adam, the first man, and Christ, the second man or the last Adam. So in 5.12, it says, one man, Adam, sinned, and so sin entered the world with the result that death entered through sin. Okay? Death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we sin because we're sinners. And we sin, we are sinners because of what Adam did and it passed on to us through that one man. Verse 14 says that Adam is a type of him who was to come. He's a prototype of Jesus Christ. And, and that was Jesus will come. And he is the one who will bring the free gift. Because he starts talking about the condemnation and then the righteousness and the free gift and, and what Adam brought was death. Verse 15, the comparison with differences is very clear here because the transgression is of one, Adam, and death came into the world through that transgression. But the free gift, here identified as the grace of God and the gift of the one man, Jesus, is life and it's brought to many. We get something from Adam we get something else from Christ. Adam is one source of which we are all part of. We're all children of Adam. Chronicles of Narnia, right? (laughs) Or we're in Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. It's really simple. There is no third way. Verse 17 explains how Abundance of grace and the gift of those who receive it. This is how we become in Christ. We receive that gift. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in him. John 1.12. And, and look at verse 17. It says, For by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of the grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. You're either in Jesus Christ or you're still locked into Adam and that's it. Verse 19, here we clearly see that there are only two sources through the one source and his disobedience, Adam, people were made sinners. But through the obedience of the one, Jesus, people are made righteous. You're either made a sinner 
or you're made righteous in Christ. Because the superabounding nature of grace, 520 tells us, where sin increased, grace came over it and covered it over. It's greater, right? Grace, grace, marvelous grace, greater than all my sin. So every person born is born in Adam. Not any of you are outside of that. And you're born with a sin nature, and because of that, you're born separate from God. But every person who has heard the gospel, which is called good news, and turned from their sin and turned to God, trusting him and believing in Jesus, receiving Jesus, now they are in Jesus. So my last question for you, and kids, you can answer this one too. Are you just in Adam, or have you yielded and believed in Jesus so that now you're in Jesus Christ? Adults, answer that question for yourselves. Talk about a life and death question. The implications are incredible. Read Romans chapter 5. It's, I told Mary after I got sat down, I could spend six months in that chapter alone. There's so much there. Read it over and over and be encouraged in your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the life of Adam. But thank you even more for the last Adam that has settled things once and for all. There is not going to be a third Adam. There is not going to be another Adam. There is only the first Adam who brought condemnation, sin and death into the world through his disobedience. And there is the last Adam who has brought eternal life and righteousness. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Amen.